Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. While this could actually be the title of a handful of Bag of Bones episodes, as the anger of a wounded woman makes for a pretty nasty opponent, but Aunt Jenny Brooks got here first. This story had started out as just another ghost story, but as we peel back the layers it becomes easy to see why her spirit just does not want to rest. This is not a story of a woman who has been betrayed by one she loved, but instead a story of a love that was deep and true and taken away. Settle in to discover how Jenny Brooks not only came to haunt her grave and still wanders the grounds today, but how she pretty much created the fierce outlaw gang, the Brooks Brothers, and launched multiple generations of revenge. Welcome, my name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person when studying the many facets of history likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found in my bag of bones. Setting the stage, we go back to 1863. We're at the peak of the Civil War and both sides are starting to use a bit of force to find soldiers for their cause. In the mountains of northwest Alabama, more specifically near Bankhead National Forest, is where our story takes place. The families that resided in these forested hills were mountain families. They lived a certain way, made their own rules, and they did not find much use for those who lived life on the flatlands. They helped each other out in times of need, fierce loyalty to those that were good to them, and if strife ever came to the mountains, they were prepared to take care of that too, usually with the aid of a rifle. Sure, many have fallen into this way of life because of rash or sometimes illegal choices they made. There were lots of places to hide in the forests and the hills. If you were lucky to have connections by way of kin, no one would ever be able to find you if you didn't want them to. It was an unspoken pact. Unless, of course, you managed to get on their bad side. Mountain feuds are hard to break free from. There is no forgiveness and there is no end until the last family member is gone, either by death or having disappeared. You've heard of the Hatfields and McCoys, no doubt. Their feud came about with a misunderstanding about a hog. It went on for years. You'll find that the family of Brooks, they take their feuding pretty seriously. You find yourself in a feud with some mountain folk, and you might as well pack up your belongings and make your way down the mountain. <laughs> and I thought this was just going to be another ghost story. 30-year-old Willis Brooks found his 14-year-old bride in nearby Granada. He was a bit older than she, but he made a home for her on the small plot of land which, over time, his bride was able to multiply until they ended up working quite a few acres of land. Her name was Elizabeth Jane Bates, but he, and soon everyone, called her Jenny. She and Willis focused on setting up their homestead before starting their family. They went on to have nine children. The first was born when Jenny was 19, that was John. 
Two years later came Angeline. Two years after that, Mac was born. In 1850, Amanda joined the family, followed by Willis Jr. I guess he was running out of boys' names. Isn't the junior usually the firstborn son? Anyway, Caldani, who everybody called Donnie, was born in 1855. Thankfully, the next one didn't arrive until 1860, and that was Gainham, then little Henry, and finally Francis, known as Franny, completes the family in 1863. Folks in this area were poor, dirt poor. They lived off the land, came together as a community, but most times did without. They needed large families to work their farms, but then that made it more mouths to feed. They got used to hand-me-down clothes and shoes and working from sunup to sundown. Jenny ran her household skillfully and frugally. Her children never went without, meaning they never went to bed hungry. They had shoes on their feet, clothes on their back. She was conscientious about their money, and they never took out a loan. Jenny was known among the people to be kind and generous. She acted as the local midwife and helped to bring hundreds of babies into the world. She had stories of delivering babies of the babies she had caught years before. She would help folks with their aches and pains, as she was quite knowledgeable in the art of herbs and holistic healing. She became lovingly known as Aunt Jenny to the neighbors and the people in the town that spread for miles around in every direction. Everyone who knew her said that if she liked you, there wasn't anything she wouldn't do for you. If she didn't like you, there was nothing you could do to change that. Most of the families in this area just wanted to live their lives and let the war go on without them. Those who were passionate about it did their duty and went to sign up. But most saw the war between the states as, quote, a rich man's war and a poor man's fight, end quote. Most of the mountain families were too poor to own slaves, and those who did went about their business. The property next to the Brooks Farm was owned by the Hubbards, who did have slaves. It was mostly a summer home for the family, but the slaves did work the land while the family was away. After the war, the slaves, who by this time had grown in number extensively, took on the Hubbard name and chose to stay in the mountains. The relations between the Hubbards and the Brooks was a stable one, and the children would grow up playing together. Now hang on, we're going to circle back to that. As far as the Brooks family was concerned, from what I could find, Willis, the father, served in the Mexican War. Now keep in mind, he's in his late 50s by now, at the peak of the Civil War, so they were just fine staying out of things. The story versus the legends seems to splinter right about here, so I'm going to stay as close to fact as I can. The story of Aunt Jenny and her boys has been passed down for generations and generations, and even during my searches, new posts from extended family members were popping up everywhere. Well, I guess if you start off with a base of nine children, that's going to give you some great lineage. All that to say, there is a lot of the fish was this big stories out there, so bear with me. These are the facts leading up to the legend. 
the Confederacy enacted a draft law called Tax in Kind in the 1860s. The short explanation of this is that, first of all, any and all able-bodied men were to serve in the Confederate Army. And second, if you were too poor to pay your taxes with cash, you had to pay with crops, livestock, and other amenities to help serve and support the war effort, with no standardized form of measurement, I might add. In order to enforce this law, the slave owners who really didn't want to get their hands dirty came up with the Confederate Home Guard. This group of men were to seize property, find the men and force them to come with, and if they happened upon any draft dodgers or deserters, bring them into. The Confederate Home Guard was made of men who were too old to serve, those who had medical conditions that made them ineligible for front lines, and also those who had just so happened to have 20 or more slaves. I believe I read in a couple instances where they sent out their slaves to do some of this job for them. (laughs) I wonder how that turned out. The farmers and landowners viewed this as another word for theft, and made it even more difficult for them to take care of their families. It was made worse when the homes were already without the men in the house, and the guard would take what they had pleased from the homes. The families of the area were already under stress with the lurking home guard, but there were also troops of Union soldiers moving through the area following the Battle of Shiloh. They were vying for dominance along the major routes in and around the Bankhead Forest. Near where the Brooks were living, a group of local citizens ambushed one of these Union troops, which happened to be the 51st Indiana Regiment. From what I could gather, uh, they were under heavy fire from both sides of the road. Many died while the rest retreated. None of the civilians died or were wounded. So the story goes that Aunt Jenny and her clan helped to bury the Union soldiers. It was the right thing to do to give them a proper burial, which apparently was bad enough. But... The closest place to bury them was in, or technically close to, because there weren't like fence boundaries or anything, uh, was in the slave cemetery of the Hubbard family. White soldiers, black cemetery, buried by the white chick next door who must have been a northern sympathizer. It's late 1863. Little Franny is just a baby. Henry is toddling around the house. There's a fire blazing in the large fireplace. They're probably just getting up from supper. When there's a knock on the door. Hello everyone, Elizabeth Bougeret here from Bag of Bones. I just wanted to interrupt this episode to take a moment to thank you for getting Bag of Bones podcast to over 1,000 downloads. I love creating this podcast for you and am happy that you are enjoying it and sharing it with others. To show my gratitude, I'd like to send you a gift. Nothing big, just a little bones swag to say thanks. No catch, no gimmick. All you need to do is click the link and fill out the form, then sit back and wait for it to show up in your mailbox. Click the link, fill out the form. That's it. And thanks from all of us that help put Bag of Bones together you. I'll now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. 
Before anyone knew what was really happening, eight men drugged the patriarch Willis Brooks from the house. We don't know if it's because they believe he was a deserter. We don't know if they came to collect their food taxes. We don't know if they found out he participated in giving the federal soldiers a proper burial. And we really can't even be sure if they were from the home guard. But in a matter of moments, Willis had a noose around his neck and was being strung up from a tree in the yard. Imagine the house of children running in all directions, screaming and crying while their father fights for his life. This is when John, the eldest at 17, comes running out the door attempting to save his father. He, no further than a few steps out of the door, is shot dead, his lifeless body crumbling to the ground. Jenny Brooks, with two babies in her arms, is held back at gunpoint, unable to run to her child or do anything to stop the men. Her husband is dangling from the tree, grasping at the rope, trying to get his fingers underneath as it closes off the air to his lungs, and then another shot rings out. They have shot Willis Brooks. The outbuildings of their home were set ablaze, and even as the flames engulfed everything they owned, no one could move. The eight men mounted their horses and leave the grieving family without even a backward glance. What happens next is a steady, consistent retelling of a story that is handed down with every generation. It doesn't falter. It doesn't have several versions. It is the story that changed their name in the history books. Jenny Brooks lowered her husband to the ground and lay him next to her son's body. She gathered the children around her. She had each of her children place a hand on their father's chest even as the blood pooled and soaked his clothes. The oldest, even to the young Henry and baby Francis. It was then the Brooks swore a blood oath. They vowed on this day that they will never rest that their mother will not draw her last breath on this earth until all eight of the men who killed their father and brother were dead. What I said earlier about feuds, a blood oath makes a feud look like child's play. She started right away in teaching her boys how to shoot a gun. She's quoted as saying, quote, I wasted many a keg of powder teaching my boys how to shoot, end quote. You've all survived history class. My history education was all about cramming dates and names and battles into my teenage brain in order to pass the newest test to make the school look good. I didn't really enjoy history until I was able to revisit it and see that history was made up of people just like me. They had struggles, they had joy, they had sadness, and they felt victories. It became so very real to me. And now, I'm on a mission to revisit as much history as I can. Hello, my name's Elizabeth Bougeret. I'm a full-time author and a full-time traveler, and I would love to share what I'm learning with you. Come with me. See my sights and stories as I go. I love history now. Real history. Not just the dates and battles. And I've discovered that others do too. 
So I've created a group in Facebook and I'd love for you to join me on my travels and adventures. Let me reintroduce you to a history that's made up of people, places, adventures. I'll even throw in a few battles for good measure. If you love American history with a side of travel, I'm sure you'll enjoy this group. Join me over there. Search the Facebook groups for History Revisited, I'm the one with the blue feather, or type in historyrevisited.info in the search bar and then join in on the adventure. And so I can be sure to welcome you properly, be sure to say hello. This blood oath took a full 30 years to fulfill, or at least as best as the boys could fulfill it. It covers hundreds of miles into Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, and their own backyard. The first one to go down was by the hand of Jenny herself. She and 14-year-old Mac waited for one of the men to come out of his house. When he mounted his horse and prepared to ride off, they shot him. The horse carried the body a few more feet, and the story goes that they followed to where the horse stopped, allowing the body to fall to the ground. Jenny is said to have cut off the head, put it in a sack, and took it home with her. There she boiled it, removing everything, including the jawbone, sanded the skull down until it was smooth, and used it as a soap dish. It was somewhere around this time that Jenny married Jacob Johnston. I'm not clear if they married late in life and so were only married a short time because he passed away, or another story I found was that he had gotten himself in trouble with the law and had to move to Tennessee. He changed his last name from Johnston to Johnson, because that's too clever for anyone to figure out. He apparently moves all of his kids in with her, and she ends up raising them and some of the grandkids as well. But after he dies, the two families sever any ties they had with one another. So, um, where are we? I don't even know what timeline we're on. <laughs> Hang on. Okay, so anyway, the boys take this blood oath pretty seriously, and they actually end up swinging a little too far over to one side and slip right into banditry. They do succeed in their mission in killing seven of the eight men responsible for the death of Willis and John Brooks, plus a few family members and some of their friends and a few pigs for good measure. The eighth man found out that he was being hunted and disappeared. According to the census records, her son Mac was the next on the family to die, or or maybe he followed the eighth man and they both disappeared because there is no record of how or where or even when, just that he was no longer with us after the 1870s census, which would have put him in his 20s. The only information that I could find was that maybe he went to Texas and maybe had an uncle there and maybe was last seen moving cattle on the Chisholm Trail, but I couldn't find any backup information. So the only thing I have is that Mac, Jenny's third child, suddenly disappeared from all the records. The son Gaiman prided himself as a sharpshooter. 
And if we have learned anything from these Wild West episodes, it should be that you don't go around claiming that you are the fastest or the baddest or the bravest or the best anything, because there will always be someone who wants to put that to the test. For Gaiman, it was the Hubbard boys. Remember, these were the freed slaves that lived behind the Brooks Farms, the friends that used to play together when they were young. After the war was over and they were freed, they chose to stay on at the Hubbard Farm. I don't really know what the situation was, if they still worked for the family, or maybe they just didn't leave. I'm not sure. There were eight or nine children on the Hubbard side of the fence as well and it is likely that they came into the world with the assistance of none other than Aunt Jenny. But one of the Hubbards, it was either Henry or Hannibal, they had quite a brood too. Anyway, he was going to try and break into the horse breeding business and bought a mare. One afternoon, he noticed that his horse was missing. He had just shown it to Henry Brooks the day before, according to the Hubbards' side of the story. He managed to track it all the way to Texas, but it was super pregnant at the time, so he had to wait. In the meantime, he assumed that one of the Brooks stole it and discussed the matter with his brother, who had recently become a deputy. It's a fair thought. By this time, the Brooks brothers were known all over the territory for minor thefts and major escapes. The stuff that the West is known for. Stuff that the dime store novel writers lived for. Things like the brothers swooping in to save the other brother moments before he's to appear before a judge for sentencing. Or two brothers jumping off a moving train handcuffed together to escape their trial. They spend as much time in jail cells as they did outside of them. So yeah, it could have happened that the brothers and some of the children were called in to face off with the Hubbard boys. Ladies and gentlemen, we have ourselves a feud. Word got around that the Hubbards were hired to bring in the Brooks boys, so they brought in their another deputy, a guy named Phillips. Well, the Brooks brothers weren't going down easy, so their plan was to sneak over there and just kill the whole family. It worked before, so. The Hubbard got wind of this, so they were ready. Just like you'd imagine. Let's put it into slow motion and add a bit of sepia tone to the whole thing. There they were. Two rows of men facing off across a field. The long strands of, um, let's just say wheat, were blowing in the wind, waiting for the first man to make a move. The Hubbard family stood clustered together near their home, while Jenny Brooks stood behind her boys, an imposing figure, her hair whipping across her face, stoic, the picture of strength. Oh yeah, that sounds good. I should write a book. So who knows who and when, but shots were fired, and as quickly as it began, it was over. When the smoke cleared, Gaiman Brooks was dead falling just inches from his mother's feet. Her other son, Harry, was shot in the leg. Deputy Phillips died, and everyone else was wounded in some way. The moral of the story? Apparently, Gaiman Brooks was not the fastest gun in the West that day.
Knowing how the Brooks boys respond to losing one of their own and the rules of the mountain, the Hubbards packed up their belongings and moved away. The Brooks-Hubbard feud can now be considered over. Meanwhile, Brother Willis Jr. was over in Indian Territory stoking a feud of his own. Willis Jr. found himself a wife while rustling cattle in Texas, and they decided to settle, I use that word lightly, in a place they called Dogtown. He and his wife, Margaret Sanders Brooks, ended up having eight children. Willis's sister, Frances, and her husband, Sam Baker, had seven children. Even Henry, who was now called Pegleg because he lost the bottom half of one of his legs thanks to that mess with the Hubbards, settled down and got himself hitched to Jesse. The two brothers and Sam Baker, along with a few from their own broods, were making quite a name for themselves in the Outlaw Hall of Fame. In true Brooks fashion, they eventually found themselves in another feud when Willis's son, Thomas, was shot and killed while attempting to rob a Texas ranger. The murder was blamed on an outlaw, Jim McFarland. Now, this feud came about with the McFarlands saying young Thomas Brooks, who was 19, was getting too big for his britches and wanted to do the job on his own. And the Brooks maintained that Jim McFarland set up Thomas by planning the robbery, but then telling the ranger he was coming. We're all the way into 1896 now, by the way. Aunt Jenny is still in her same home while her sons are out stealing stuff, making her proud. She's at home, apparently raising everyone else's kids. Grandkids, great-grandkids, neighbors' kids, all seem to get dropped off at Aunt Jenny's. The comments of these websites were strewn with stories of how such-and-such wasn't related to Aunt Jenny, but her great-great-great-grandma was raised by her. For over six years, the Brooks and the McFarlands and allies had grown so violent that folks of this brand-new, tiny little town named Spokogee that was doing its best to grow were afraid to set foot outside when word got around that one or both groups was in town, and Lord help them all if anyone from both sides happened to show up at the same time, because that always meant bloodshed. By September of 1902, things with this new feud had escalated so violently that the McFarlands and the Brooks would end up having a final shootout right down the center of Spagogi, Indian Territory. It's in the history books as one of the worst, bloodiest feuds of all time. On September 22nd, the head of the Brooks family, Willis Jr., two of his sons, brother-in-law Sam Baker and his other brother Henry Pegleg Brooks, who had just been released from jail two weeks prior, walked right into the trap laid by the McFarlands. The head of the McFarland band, Jim, had just gotten out of prison himself less than four weeks prior and heard the Brooks boys were nearby. This town was just being built because a new railway was coming right to it. The Brooks-McFarland feud all but destroyed the growth of the town. It had to be renamed to try and save the investments people had made. Side note, eventually it became known 
and still is known as Dustin, Oklahoma. Willis Jr. and his son Clifton would be killed, and another son, John, was wounded so badly that the doctors were sure that he wasn't going to survive. But John did end up surviving well into the 1950s. The four survivors, including Jim McFarland, were all arrested but then released on bail. On October 10, 1902, Jim McFarland was ambushed and killed near his home. This closes the book on one of the worst feuds of that era. Caldani, Jenny's sixth child, died in 1905, but not before she added ten children to carry on Aunt Jenny's legacy through the name of Salmons. Two to four of her children followed in the family business and became murderers and bandits. Henry, the last surviving son, spent time in and out of jail, but finally returned home to be near his mother. His criminal deeds shifted more to the mountain moonshine business. This moonshine business was a hot commodity in the mountain country and only became illegal after the end of the Civil War, which only made it more popular because most people just turned a blind eye. However, in 1919, the United States was on the verge of prohibition, and soon a manhunt for all the distilleries began. Henry's was soon discovered, and his distillery was surrounded. In typical Brooks fashion, he refused to surrender, thinking, I'm sure, that he, they would just take him to jail. Again. But they did not. They opened fire. His body was riddled with bullets. His wife, Jessie, tried to seek justice for the brutal death of her husband, but she was only awarded the admission that they didn't mean to kill the horse. <laughs> she was compensated accordingly. Angeline, her oldest daughter, was the last surviving child of Willis and Jenny Brooks. She married Ganim Lyons in 1865 and had five children. She died in Texas in 1935. Jenny Jones outlived all of her children save one, and even son-in-law Sam Baker. I suppose it was the price of her soul being traded for the revenge of her husband and son's killers. She was proud of her sons until the very end, saying they, quote, died like men with their boots on, end quote. Later in life, she became a Christian and part of the church, donating two acres of her land to have the Macedonia Missionary Baptist Church built. She was extremely charitable, participated often in community events, and had strong opinions on politics. On her deathbed, which was in a small mother-in-law house next to her son Henry's home, she was surrounded by family. Her daughter-in-law, Jessie, was close by and tells the story of her final hours. The story goes that Jenny asked the pastor if she could wash her hands before she went to meet the Lord. So her great-granddaughter brought her the soap dish made from the skull of the first man she killed on her vengeful spree. She rolled onto her back, closed her eyes, and passed away. Maybe she had just gotten tired. Maybe her heart was broken with the loss of all of her children. Or maybe 
that eighth man from her blood oath all those years ago finally died, and it was now her time. She could finally draw her last breath. Hello listeners, we are Katie, Amber, Kylie, and Matt, and we are the hosts of Save Me an Isle Seat, a show that talks about musicals in an understandable and relatable way. If you like musicals or theater in general, or if you're interested in them but don't know where to start, we'd love to help introduce you. Come find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or on our website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. And we'll be sure to save you an aisle seat. A local librarian, Carla Waldrip, who was raised in that area, has made it her mission that the history of the town and that of Aunt Jenny will never be forgotten. She created a presentation where she dons a gray wig and wears a black, simple dress to tell the tales the life and adventures of Aunt Jenny. A hayride that would wind around the old property would be included, along with those colorful stories she has passed down and the legends that fill in the missing pieces. The original house that was built by Willis and Jenny was burned down by the Confederate Home Guard, but her son Henry built her the other one for his family and a smaller one for her in 1914, where she stayed until her death. Her burial site and homestead still gets plenty of visitors, and that is largely due to the continuous spiritual activity documented around the grounds. There have been many, many sightings of a green light or lights hovering around her grave near the road, sometimes at the home or in the forests along the edges. When a light is shown at the green orbs, they disappear. Some even say, that you can hear her whisper on the wind. If you mention her sons, the voice will harshly whisper to get out. Others have mentioned, in many of the comment streams, that if you lay on the ground near her grave and ask, Help me, Aunt Jenny, if she likes you, she will appear. The house on the property was built in 1930 and eventually sold in 1965. It never did become a historical landmark. But then in 2005, vandals burned it to the ground. By the time rescue efforts could arrive, the damage had already been done. Then in 2007, the headstone was stolen from Jenny Brooks Johnson's grave in Poplar Springs Cemetery. Carla Waldrop says, You would think we could just let her rest in peace. I think Aunt Jenny would be thrilled to know that people still come and visit her. But when asked what she thinks about all the vandalism, she adds, Taking a headstone and burning her home? I don't think she'd be pleased at all. If you've done your research on Aunt Jenny, I wouldn't want to be in their shoes. She is survived by many, many, many generations of grandchildren. She's had a couple books written about her life, and even one short movie called Mama Jenny and the Brooks Boys from 2016 that was written and directed by Dan Fite Jr. An interesting story indeed. Thanks for joining me this week on Bag of Bones. Don't forget to click the link in the show notes and fill out the form to receive your free gift from me. And while you're clicking things and filling things out, if you wouldn't mind adding a 5-star rating and review, that would be really great. Until next week, then.
Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougere with research by Anna Krunkeberg. Produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited. Music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougere.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougere and DCT Enterprises.